nutrition is one of those topics where there is so much debate, there is so much uh, group identity and ideology involved that it's very hard for people to uh, spot when someone is being accurate in what they say or not. The Triathlon Show 208. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Danny Lennon, who is the founder of Sigma Nutrition and host of the top-ranked podcast, Sigma Nutrition Radio, that I'm sure a lot of you are already listening to. Before we get into the interview with Danny, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. If you are enduring some long and hard bike rides during the winter indoors, then you probably, like me, are sweating a lot. And if you happen to be a salty sweater, the way that I am, for example, then you probably want to think a little bit about whether there is a need for replacing some of the electrolytes that you will be losing, and the sodium in particular that you will be losing with that sweat. Precision hydration helps you do that. You can figure out whether you're a salty sweater or not by simply going to their free hydration plan tab on their website and you'll answer 10 questions and they will give you an idea about how much you sweat and how much salt or sodium you lose in that sweat. If you want to try your first box or tube of Precision Hydration Electrolytes for free, use the promo code DEATHTRIATHLONSHOW, all in word, all caps, on precisionhydration.com. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. With Christmas soon coming up, Roka is a perfect stop to do some of your Christmas shopping for your favorite triathletes, whether they might be wanting that new shiny wetsuit or trisuit, or whether it's something completely different like a pair of high-quality sunglasses. Roka has a lot of different things to offer, so definitely go and check them out. And you, the best thing is that you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. And one more thing, this is not a sponsorship slot actually, but I do want to give a big shout out to the book publisher Human Kinetics because they sent me a set of uh, newly published books for free very kindly and uh, they all are super interesting, interesting. so I'm getting into Advanced Marathoning, the third edition uh, right now and actually the second edition of that book was the first endurance sports book I ever read and that really was what sparked my passion for learning more and more about endurance sports in the first place so so that's uh, kind of sentimental almost to to go and read the, the third edition now. Then the other new books, newly released books that they sent to me include books like Train to Try, Cycling Anatomy and The Modern Art and Science of Mobility. All look really good and human kinetics have a lot of books of course to offer, maybe that's another christmas gift id you can check them out on humankinetics.me and see what sorts of books they have and uh, read some blog articles and so on so that's a good place to find them so thank you human kinetics for sending me those books without any further ado let's get into the interview with daniel lennon welcome to that triathlon show danny how are you doing tonight I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. 
It's great to have you. I've been a long-time listener of the Sigma Nutrition podcast, and I think that uh, a lot of my listeners are also listeners, actually. I know quite a few people have emailed me with uh, and recommending different episodes and asking about different episodes. So, uh, so And for those that are not, then definitely worth checking out uh, that, and uh, they'll get a taste of what your podcast has to offer from this uh, this interview. But can you introduce yourself a bit uh, more, rather uh, other than just being uh, a podcaster? Sure. Um, I'll try and keep it brief so we can get into some of the good stuff that people I'm sure are more looking forward to. So briefly on my background, uh, from an academic standpoint, I have a master's degree in nutritional sciences and an undergraduate degree in biology and physics. And for the past six years or so, I've been running a company that I founded called Sigma Nutrition. And really the goal is to put out educational media content related to evidence-based nutrition and then some related fields like sleep performance and so on really looking at the kind of intersection between performance and health and, and the main lens that we do that through is obviously nutrition so there's a few ways that we go about that the primary one that we're most well known for is of course the podcast uh, Sigma Nutrition Radio, which has been going since the start of 2014. Uh, but we also produce uh, content on the website, um, like such as articles. We've also got now a series of what we call Sigma Statements coming, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, I get to speak at quite a lot of conferences, thankfully, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. And uh, we have a coaching aspect to the business as well, where we have uh, four coaches on the team now who look after a variety of different types of uh, clients. Uh, many of those end up being athletes. We've done quite a lot of work in weight making sports. So combat sports like MMA, boxing, taekwondo, judo, as well as strength-based sports with weight classes like powerlifting and to a lesser degree, uh, uh, Olympic weightlifting. Um, but we've had a, a, a a whole variety of different types of clients as well. So there's both this educational and coaching side to the business, which hopefully gives some um, useful overlap in terms of translating some of the research that I spend most of my time reading uh, because we have tested some of the stuff with the, the clients that our coaches work with. So really that's the, the cliff notes that we try and put out educational uh, content around evidence-based nutrition and do it through those uh, few different means. Yeah, that's a perfect introduction. So uh, with that, uh, what do you think from the research that you're reading and uh, people that you're talking to about nutrition, what do you think are the most interesting and or important nutritional hot topics in uh, the academic world currently? What, what's the, the interesting research that's coming out? So, I mean, there's so much going on in, in various different fields. And a lot of the time it comes down to someone's own particular preferences and what they find interesting and their own context. So if that question was asked to me personally, one thing I've talked quite a lot about on my podcast is my deep interest in circadian biology and how that ties into things like sleep, as well as exposure to light and dark. And then we also have this emerging area from that field of chrononutrition. So essentially how meal timing and the distribution of our calories across the day can influence our health via impacts on circadian rhythms and our circadian biology. So um, very briefly for people who are unaware, we have various processes in the body that run on a circadian rhythm. So a rhythm of about 24 hours. And we have certain 
things in our environment that can help set or entrain some of these rhythms to a more precise 24-hour period, the main one being light and dark, hence why we want to get light exposure early in the day. And then late at night, we want to avoid lots of bright light. And I think most people are familiar with the idea of looking at a bright screen or having lots of artificial lighting late at night can be problematic for their sleep and for their melatonin production and so on. And that's just one of the many aspects related to circadian biology. So for me, uh, the area I spend a lot of time looking at and I'm very interested in would be the general area of, I would say, circadian biology and how light, dark, and sleep tie into that. And then from a nutritional point, how our nutrient intake can potentially play a role and impact our circadian rhythms and and also how circadian rhythms with certain processes may have implications for when we should eat certain foods. Um, One example just being we have a circadian rhythm to our insulin sensitivity. And so it might make more sense to partition more carbohydrate earlier in the day. Uh, And again, there's a lot more nuance to that and that's very oversimplified, but that's just one area that uh, I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you have any other examples, any other areas uh, other than the, the circadian uh, rhythm and how that ties into nutrition that you find exciting or that you, you think that the academic world in general finds exciting and that there's a lot going on in at the moment? Well, I think the one that most people hear about as a real emerging, exciting field that's very cutting edge is probably in the area of the gut microbiome. And this I mean, all the time you're seeing papers published related to the gut microbiome, how our nutrition and other lifestyle and environmental factors can impact the microbiome, and then also how the microbiome can impact other processes around the body. And I mean, there's just amazing work being done. And actually, the university where I did my master's, um, University College Cork in Ireland, has is home to one of the best microbiome labs in the world, the APC, and they have done some really groundbreaking uh, work in many areas related to that. Now, of course, this comes with challenges because it's such a relatively new field and we're finding out so much about it all the time. And there is so much complexity to how the microbiome uh, uh, interacts with our health that sometimes I think some people can uh, jump to conclusions on it and maybe make statements that we're not really sure of yet. And so I think if you look at what gets talked about in a lot of academic circles is, yes, this is very exciting and we're finding out some very cool things, but there's so much more we still need to work out before we have some real concrete idea of how we can uh, really make this information work best for people. But I think that is definitely an area that a lot of people are hearing about and is definitely seen as one of the, those cutting edge areas in nutrition science. Do you have some some nugget there, an example of the implication of the gut microbiome and how that might be useful or what we might need to know about that? So I'm sure later on in some of our discussion, we might get to some of the practical conclusions, but just to give an idea of some of the interesting areas of research, I know the group in Cork have spent a lot of time looking at this gut-brain axis. So this interaction between the gut and the brain and potentially how the makeup of our microbiome can influence uh, certain processes in that gut-brain axis. And so they've used primarily rodent models, but looking at the interaction of where we have a gut dysbiosis, how that can be associated with things like increased anxiety, um, depression, um, altered mood states, and so on, and how 
potentially changing the microbiome can have implications there. So that's just one example of some of the interesting and, and cutting edge stuff we're seeing. On the flip side of that, though, in terms of practical uh, things that we can do, uh, where it, it does seem that there's a few things that we do know about the microbiome. So for example, it seems that a high degree of diversity within the microbiome is a good thing. That means just uh, differing amounts of, or different um, species of, of bacteria, for example, are around. Um, but in terms of what constitutes an optimal or an ideal gut microbiome, I don't think we can really say what that is yet. And there might actually not be an answer to that question. It might just be related to the context of an individual person. And we can we see, for example, that the microbiome changes quite dynamically and in a short space of time with changes in our diet. So trying to work out, are some of those changes actually good or bad changes, or are they just normal adaptations to the new food we're taking in? So I think, uh, like I mentioned before, some people can take this too far and say, you need to be taking this specific uh, probiotic or like probiotics are good in general, or you need to eat this type of food specifically. Whereas I think there's still a lot of stuff we need to figure out. Um, so the probably the big take home from a practical perspective is if people do want to have a healthy gut is going with stuff we've probably known for other reasons for a long period of time that's eat a variety of different types of vegetables, get plenty of soluble fiber, and um, like I said, a variety of fibrous vegetables, and you're probably going to be doing your, your gut a good service. Right. And uh, similar to, to this discussion on uh, the the hot topics in the academic world, uh, do you see some other trends in the applied field among practitioners in nutrition? I mean, this is always going to be happening, uh, particularly when we look at athletes, because there's always an impetus to try and be innovative, to do something new, to try and get an extra one or 2% out of an athlete's performance. And obviously, if you can improve an athlete's overall health, that should have a knock-on effect too. So I think there's no shortage of coaches, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes themselves trying different types uh, of diets that they hear about in different areas. So pretty much everything I think will get tried by people at some point. Some of the ones that obviously are quite popular now, the ketogenic diet is, has exploded in popularity over the last number of years, uh, is incredibly popular for people trying that. Uh, intermittent fasting has been around quite a while, but again, it seems to have had uh, quite a, a big up, uptick in how many people know about that. And on a related note, that ties back to our discussion earlier about circadian biology, time-restricted feeding, uh, where we restrict our calories to within a certain number of hours per day, uh, and is related to what we would think of as like daily intermittent fasting protocols. That has got some attention to. Um, so they are some of the ones that are quite popular now that I'm pretty sure many people in your audience have probably tried or heard about at least that um, are, I, I would say, the ones that are primarily from a new nutrition point most popular if we if we're to put a label on certain diets right now yeah and is there anything that perhaps is older but that has uh, caught on and that is now widely used among the the best practitioners in in athletics and and in sports in particular that uh, has now some a solid background of of anecdotal and scientific evidence that that you see is becoming is now sort of mm. the gold standard that's a really good question. I, I think with 
athlete nutrition and conventional sports nutrition for a long time we've known about the benefits directly for performance of carbohydrates and so conventionally maybe the default position for a lot of people was well if you're an athlete that has a high workload you probably want to be on a high carbohydrate diet and i think most of the literature would have backed that up uh, but in practice, of course, we've known for a long period of time that athletes across many different sports have play, played around with alternating their carbohydrate and calorie intakes across different days across the training week or at different times across the training year based on what they were trying to do and, and for several different reasons. And in recent years, we've actually started to see a lot of research being published looking at can we get a benefit to having these altering carbohydrate intakes or some people would call it carbohydrate cycling, essentially thinking about when we have low, moderate, high intakes of carbohydrate, either at specific meals or in specific days, can that confer certain benefits? And so where a lot of this carbohydrate periodization uh, literature is born out of is noticing a couple of things. One, like I said, for nearly all sports, um, I, I would say at least that have some anaerobic uh, uh, component to them is going to benefit from having a high carbohydrate availability when you perform at your best. So having full glycogen stores and probably some exogenous uh, glycogen or carbohydrate as well. Now, there, with endurance sports, there may be an exception someone could probably make if you talk about Ironman, 100-mile races, and so on. Uh, but for pretty much everything else, including marathon, triathlon, etc., that people still think of as, as long distance, the intensity and the speed that you're going at in those uh, sports is still going to require a significant amount of uh, glucose oxidation to be able to really perform at your best. And so I think for performance in those sports, you definitely want to have full carbohydrate stores at the time that you want to be performing. Now, the thing that uh, on the flip side to that is people will have looked at, well, if we go through periods of carbohydrate restriction or a low carbohydrate diet or either training or recovering with low amounts of glycogen in the system, we see certain adaptations that happen at the level of the muscle that might be actually beneficial. So in those instances of carbohydrate restriction and you do training and then you're recovering from training sessions with that restricted carbohydrate intake, you see adaptations like um, increased gene expression of certain genes. You see increased production of mitochondria, uh, which can uh, help to oxidize or burn up certain substrate. And you see an adaptation of the athlete being able to exercise at higher intensities um, uh, with more fat oxidation. Uh, so we see these series of potential benefits for performance. But the problem is, again, we can't get that high-end performance where, uh, at certain exercise intensities that we would get when we have lots of carbohydrates around. So one potential way to look at it is, well, what if we use certain sessions across the week where we restrict carbohydrate, either in the session or after the session or a combination of both, get some of those adaptations at the muscle. But then for the training sessions, we really want to perform our best at, and particularly for competition, then we get that carbohydrate back in. And so this has been one of the areas that's been explored, and it definitely seems that there can be some potential for it. So I think that is an area that uh, maybe athletes were playing around with before we got to the point now where we've started to see more literature come out 
testing some of these uh, types of strategies in terms of where we place carbohydrate carbohydrate across the training week. Yeah, and I think that the, the listeners that want to learn more about that, because I think it's a, a fascinating topic, and you've done episodes with interviews with uh, James Morton and I believe John Hawley as well on mm. on these topics, correct? So those are really good ones and uh, go into detail on, on this specific topic. Yeah, for sure. So uh, like you said, if people do want the, the deep uh, dive on that, there was a discussion I had with James Morton, who was the uh, lead performance nutritionist at Team Sky during many of their Tour de France wins. Um, now, of course, Team Ineos. And uh, also, they might want to check out a, an episode I did with uh, Trent Stellingworth, who is uh, based up in Canada, who has done a lot of work both as a researcher and a practitioner with elite level endurance athletes. Um, and this is uh, definitely within his wheelhouse, so worth checking out some of his material too, if people have want to go quite deep on that. Perfect. So uh, let's move into some uh, some topics that I've listed here that uh, yeah I just wanted to give a an overview and in particular from endurance athletes uh, perspectives on uh, on these topics and let's start with one that you already mentioned so carbohydrates in general and uh, low carb diets what's the uh, what's the the uh, the lowdown on the 101 on that Sure. So I think people might have got the punchline from uh, my previous answer, but to kind of pull that back into the the key thing to take away is that yes, by restricting carbohydrate or being on a continuous low carb ketogenic diet, you do see certain adaptations that on the surface might seem beneficial. So for example, like I said, some of those change at the level of the muscle, the increased uh, production of mitochondria, um, so, so mitochondrial biogenesis, um, ability to have um, increased fat oxidation at higher exercise intensities. However, we still don't see the improvements in performance. So in other words, at for most, nearly all endurance sports, you're going to be reaching a level of exercise intensity during those where you're still going to rely on glucose or carbohydrate oxidation to be able to have the highest output uh, of work. And so if you don't have carbohydrate around and you're just relying on fat oxidation, you're not going to be able to produce energy quick enough through that fat oxidation. Um, and so and it's, that comes back down to being limited by oxygen, for example. And so in that case, because you can't produce energy quick enough, your only result is to pull down the intensity at which you're working at. So you end up having a lower output because of that. So there are downsides to that. Another one that gets talked about within low carbohydrate diets and endurance athletes is people see this, um, say that a low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet, once you're fat adapted to it, that you have less glycogen breakdown. So it's a glycogen sparing diet. And that on the surface, again, seems like a beneficial thing. If we can spare glycogen. So in other words, we can go longer into the exercise bout before we start breaking down as much glycogen. That means we would have longer of these carbohydrate stores to use. However, what seems like happening, and, and this is based on work that's been done by Trent Stellingworth, for example, is that after even like five days of being on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, we have a uh, reduction or a turning down of a certain enzyme, pyruvate dehydrogenase. And this essentially means that 
even when carbohydrates are refed, we the athlete has a poor ability to be able to break down glycogen. So so get that glycogen or that carbohydrate that's stored in their muscle and liver and be able to break that down into glucose to use. So they have those stores of carbohydrate, but they're not actually able to access that after being adapted to this uh, type of diet. And so rather than thinking of it as glycogen sparing, the other term that's been used, and Louise Burke kind of uh, made this popular, is rather than glycogen sparing, it could be glycogen impairing. So we have an impaired ability to get to that glycogen. And so for those reasons, it's probably not a good idea to be chronically on a low-carbohydrate diet as an endurance athlete. Like I said, maybe you could make a case for uh, Ironman, 100 milers, uh, things like that, to be able to do that, simply because the, the duration of that event is so long that the exercise intensity that they're working at is low enough that you can continually just be in fat oxidation. So you can just rely on fat metabolism to get energy, and that's not necessarily a problem. But any other type of endurance event, you're going to have periods of time and quite significant periods of time during that race where you, to go at your fastest, you have to rely on uh, carbohydrate oxidation. And if you are on a low carbohydrate diet, you number one, don't have much for around. And then even if you do have some in your muscle, you have an impaired ability to access that. And so if you, I mean, just look at some of the best uh, marathon runners or even people at a, what we would classify as a recreational level. If you just look at the speeds they can reach um, during events, if they're in any way decent, they are going to require a significant amount of carbohydrate oxidation. So I think from the perspective of an endurance athlete, sure, there are certain times in your training week and certain meals and certain days where carbohydrate restriction can be used. But for times where you want your best performance, so those most important training sessions, and particularly for um, your uh, event you want to have high carbohydrate availability, both through full glycogen stores and exogenous carbohydrate. And you want to have been used to consuming carbohydrates relatively uh, frequently across the week so that you don't lose that ability to access that glycogen. Yeah. And, and just to come back to one point there on, on the carbohydrate cycling, one thing that John Hawley mentioned when, when I interviewed him was that when they do low carbohydrate days or low carbohydrate workouts, they typically would do that twice per week and uh, not really more than that because they just found that that gets into dangerous territory of being too lo long in low carbohydrate availability and potentially even yes. low energy availability is that a similar kind of thing that that you would say uh, like twice per week or so is appropriate yeah and and if we're going basing on this on the literature we have now available you're looking at yeah probably about two of those sessions a week and then you're going to be picking those sessions on uh, training sessions where the performance doesn't matter per se. So this is typically if, let's say you have a runner that goes for just a recovery run, so a relatively light intensity run just to get moving on a recovery day where how fast and they do it and how they actually perform doesn't matter that much. It, they're doing that session for other reasons. In that case, you could sure go into that with low carbohydrate availability, have just some protein afterwards, don't replenish carbohydrates straight away. You'll get some of those adaptations at the muscle, but then for the most of the rest of your sessions across the week, you want to make sure you're fueled up appropriately. So probably about two sessions seems to be where most of that that literature is pointing towards and then also it's it's still not completely uh, determined 
if that carbohydrate periodization, that restriction has a meaningful benefit over, let's say, just standard high carb intakes across the board. So um, on, on some of the trials that we have, at least, it seems to suggest that they might give relatively similar uh, impacts, maybe even slight benefit for higher carb, but there, it definitely would be, be- preferential to a continuously low carbohydrate intake. So still need to work out exactly how much of a benefit, if any, it has over continual high carbohydrate fueling. But mechanistically, it would make sense to me that you do get some of those benefits. But yeah, probably for a competitive athlete, you're probably only looking at a a couple of sessions across the week where you're going to be doing so. Right. Next on my list here is uh, the gut microbiome, but I think we already covered that pretty well. So unless there's something you want to add to that, we can move to intermittent fasting and uh, also time-restricted feeding. Sure. So intermittent fasting uh, and time-restricted feeding have some things in common, but are slightly different. So if we think about what time-restricted feeding is, this came, this was born out of that circadian research. So it's based on the premise of trying to match up food intake uh, with the light-dark cycle. So we want to get that food intake during the day, uh, avoiding uh, consuming at night, and also trying to avoid what we see is relatively common in modern times of people eating food relatively soon after waking up, continuing that throughout the day and eating late into the night. So they they have this long feeding window of maybe 15, 16 hours uh, on average of consuming food. And the time-restricted feeding is if you take that and shrink that down to eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, we still don't know exactly what is the best right now, but shrinking that down seems to have benefits. Um, and we've seen this across rodent models. We've seen quite a lot in, in human trials now as well for benefits from the time-restricted feeding model. But that is kind of, again, based on a, a circadian perspective. With intermittent fasting, this can cover a whole host of different types of protocols. And that would range from a daily intermittent fast, which is basically very similar to a time-restricted feeding. Every day you have a shrunken down window of feeding and then a longer fasting window. Other types of intermittent fasting models would be like a, you could do a full day of fasting once per week. So just don't eat for a whole day. You have five, two diets, which is two days a week would be um, classified as fasting days, although most of those trials would allow people to consume about 500 calories on each of those days. And then the other days they eat normally or to uh, satiety. You have alternate day fasting, which as the name suggests, every second day you have one of those fasting days where you're keeping to about 500 calories. And the other days is a just eating, again, ab libitum usually. Um, and then you have an area of prolonged fasting, which is we don't have as much uh, research, but it's certainly of interest now, particularly within the longevity field of if you fast for multiple days and perhaps longer. And so uh, with that, we can see that there's these whole hosts of different types of fasting regimens. And the problem is they're all slightly different. And so trying to have some clear conclusions just when we say, what is the benefit of fasting for X, Y, and Z can be difficult because we can change how long you're fasting for. We can change the frequency at which you do that fast, and we can change the degree of the restriction you have there. And so it's very hard to define one thing as just fasting. Now, to try and keep it brief, when we talk about the uh, endurance athlete, one of the benefits that we definitely see in time-restricted feeding, and we've certainly seen a lot of 
intermittent fasting models that is typically seen as a benefit from a health or weight loss perspective is that without tracking intake or intentionally trying to undereat, a lot of people end up eating less calories when they use a fasting model, at least initially. And this is why a lot of people like it. It's why there's a lot of hype around it is that people tend to see weight loss and that's just because they end up eating less calories and they have this um, uh, impact then on body weight. Now, if we're looking at that in the context of a endurance athlete, that may or may not be a good thing. Oftentimes, if we think about the training schedules a lot of endurance athletes have, we want to try and fuel them appropriately. And if we start cutting down on opportunities for them to eat, that may not be the best if they're already struggling to eat enough food to fuel their training and to recover appropriately. Um, however, for certain parts of the year, if they are actively trying to get their weight down, or let's say they've had an, an injury or some time off and they've put on some body fat and they're trying to lose that, it might be one strategy they can use. Um, they don't necessarily have to, but it could be useful. But uh, yeah, the only case I'd be wary of is depending on what times their training is at and how much their overall calorie and macronutrient needs are. This may or may not be a useful strategy for them because it could limit their ability to get on nutrients when they need to get them on. Yeah, exactly. Going going for a hard morning workout and not fueling before and then still not getting to, to fuel until several hours after doesn't sound ideal for, for our population. Yes, 100%. And I've said this before because I'm quite a fan of things like time-restricted eating for general health for a lot of people. But again, it all comes down to the context. And if the context is a competitive athlete who has a, a full-on training schedule and is doing the amount of training that a lot of endurance athletes do, and let's say they're training late into the evening, then it doesn't make sense to say, oh, time-restricted feeding is good. Stop eating at 6 p.m. even though they're going to go then and train and then they come home and they can't refuel after a training session that just obviously makes no sense so it's all important about the context and what the goal is of that person's nutrition and in the case of fueling for recovery and performing to be the best athlete you can be that is a different set of uh, parameters than just the considerations of the average person trying to eat healthily and regarding fasting, what benefits do we do we see for regarding fasting in in the studies that we've seen? They might be in the general population, but but what are the potential benefits of that? Yeah, so one of the problems of trying to tease this apart is, as I said, because you see weight loss occur in a lot of the fasting trials, um, that could be a confounder in working out what exactly caused some of the benefits we may see. Was it the fasting itself or was it just that weight loss happened? So for example, if we see improvements in blood glucose in an intermittent fasting trial, but they also uh, the participants lost considerable amount of body weight, then the improvements they saw in blood glucose or triglycerides or cholesterol could be down to that weight loss because we know that happens. So then we have to start looking for trials where weight loss doesn't occur and we can try and tease some of that apart. What we see with time-restricted feeding, first of all, is that it definitely seems to be beneficial for um, glycemic control or um, at least uh, metabolism of certain meals. So we know that carbohydrate and fat metabolism kind of gets screwed up late at night um, and certainly into the night. And so having large meals with lots of carbohydrate and or fat 
late at night is probably problematic. And so by shifting that earlier in the day in a what we would might do with a time-restricted feeding model, you probably get better metabolism of those meals. You get lower glycemic excursions. So in other words, your your blood glucose doesn't go up as much or stay as high for as long after that same meal if it's eaten in the morning versus late at night. So there are some uh, things we can look at from a, let's say, a blood glucose metabolism perspective. Um, for the average person, like we said, there's impacts on weight loss. And then beyond that, a lot of the stuff is still um, hypothesized of what benefits it could have. Um, depending on the fasting protocol, again, it could be down to things like blood glucose. Um, it could be, uh, it's of big interest right now in the longevity field that periods of time where we have complete nutrient restriction high, uh, potentially could be beneficial um, from just a, a standard health and or longevity perspective. Um, I do think there's probably a benefit to having periods of time where we're not either eating or in a postprandial state. So other words, digesting a meal of having periods of time where we are, are let's say, uh, fasting physio- physiology, so to speak, is, is switched on. I think that can be beneficial. Um, but they are some of the things that get looked at. Now, the, the next question, of course, is does fasting have benefits above and beyond what we get from that same food eaten in a manner where we don't have periods of fasting, but we maintain the same overall dietary habits in terms of food quality. We have the uh, same body composition and so on. And that's a more difficult question to um, to answer. So I I would stop short of saying everyone should be fasting, but I am relatively optimistic that a lot of people could probably see some general health improvements over long term from some type of periodic fasting but how often and how much of that to do is is really really hard to say mm. yeah but very very interesting still and uh, mm. let's move on to uh, genetics and nutrition that's another area that's uh, been in the news a lot and uh, and more importantly in the uh, in the peer reviewed research and uh, and the academic setting so can you talk a little bit about what's going on there Sure. So, I mean, with genetics, we see, um, I suppose, a couple of different sides of number one, how our genes may influence food choices we should make. And then the other way around of how our food choices can potentially influence gene expression. Now, I think the genetic thing has become a lot Uh, has become quite popular uh, in the mainstream right now because of the availability of consumer genetic tests that people can go and get something like a 23andMe or whatever other type of genetic test. Um, And now there are actually a lot of companies offering this specifically targeting athletes of we're going to test certain genes and tell you how you should be training or tell you the ideal diet for you. And I think the main consensus to come out of uh, the, the main experts and researchers in this area would be, yes, we're seeing some really interesting things of how certain genes interact uh, with nutrition and training in a certain way. However, where we are not at yet is a point where we can run a genetic test on you and tell you an exact diet that is best for you or the exact type of training you should be doing. And I, I don't think that is um, th- those services or that t- type of uh, service is 
we're not there yet, and I think it's just not evidence-based position. However, what we can say is there's certain genes we can know something's going on. So like we can look at certain genes and tell if someone is a slow or fast metabolizer of caffeine. That might be a useful thing to know. We can look at um, someone's APOE uh, genotype, and that might tell us something about their potential uh, risk of um, heart disease on a high-fat diet or not. Um, it can also tell us maybe risk about some other things that get into the neurodegenerative disease area. Um, so there's a couple of isolated genes that that tell us that. But in terms of getting to the point where we can test your genome and then say, here's the exact diet you need to be on, we are we are not quite there yet. Um, and then again, an, an area that I haven't ventured as, as much into, but on the training side, we're certainly not at a point where someone should be make, basing their training decisions and certainly not the type of sport they want to do solely based on a genetic test because uh we're, we're not quite there so um beyond beyond that there's other interesting things of course we see within genetics of just inter-individual variation so here there might not be a lot of stuff we can individually practically take apart from the knowledge to be aware of that yes we are all individual and that even when we look at most of the science we still need to keep an open mind that someone may be an outlier or respond differently. So we see vast differences in how people respond in terms of their blood glucose response to certain meals. We see differences in how people deal with certain nutrients, uh, what type of enzymes they have that are working or not working, um, their absorption of different nutrients based on that. Um, We see differences genetically in how people respond to, let's say, a calorie surplus or a calorie deficit. So in other words, if we overfeed them, we know that our body typically has these feedback mechanisms to increase how much energy we expend. However, that varies from person to person of how much we increase energy expenditure we see in response to overfeeding. So uh, one of the great studies I, I mention in in this case to people is uh, Jim Levine did one back in 1999 where they overfed people by a thousand calories a day uh, for eight weeks and they looked at the response uh, in terms of what happened and you see that for some people when they're overfed that extra thousand calories they have this massive increase in energy expenditure uh, mainly through an increase in something called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So how much energy you're using up through movements throughout the day that aren't actual exercise that are happening quite subconsciously. Some people have a dramatic increase in that. So their actual net surplus isn't actually that large. So if they overeat by a thousand and let's say their NEAT goes up by six or 700, then their actual surplus of energy left over is only like 300. And so the weight they're gaining in that surplus is relatively smaller than other people in that study who, despite overeating by a thousand, see almost no real increase in their energy expenditure and no ramping up of their NEAT levels. And therefore they gained a lot of body fat. So we see there's this genetic variation in how we respond to overeating. We see the same in response to undereating. And that's why we, in practice, observe all the time two athletes who have very similar metrics on paper, they're the same weight, same sex, may even eat the same number of calories to maintain their weight. Yet when we put them on a diet or try and get them to gain weight, the responses between those two athletes are very different. And a large part of that could be explained by genetics. So there's a whole host of different areas within genetics we, we could talk about, but there's a, a few things that just came to mind. 
Yeah, no, that, that's a great overview. Uh, the final question that I want to ask is uh, a more general one, and that's uh, since nutrition is uh, such a hot topic and uh, often portrayed in, in media and not always accurately, how do you think people can make sure that they get actual quality information about nutrition and avoid uh, the sensationalism that uh, we see out there on social media and, and media in general? Yeah, th- this is really difficult. And it's I think it's probably the same in other areas apart from nutrition as well. But f- nutrition is one of those topics where there is so much debate, there is so much uh, group identity and ideology involved that it's very hard for people to uh, spot when someone is being accurate in what they say or not. Um, it's kind of almost similar to fields like uh, politics, for example, where there's just so much competing different ideas because people are based in different camps. So some ways that I would suggest as a start point is a, a few red flags you can probably spot is when someone is speaking in absolutes, that there's this one diet that is the best. There is this one type of nutrition strategy that is the best for all things that everyone should be doing at all times. That's generally a red flag because it's too absolutist and doesn't take enough context into account. So that is usually one way to at least be a bit skeptical of what you're seeing. Two is to, no matter how convincing the point is immediately, or even who is saying it, I would kind of recommend to people to always keep that critical thinking and skepticism to the front of their mind. So be open to the information you're hearing being true, but also then seek out, well, what are the competing ideas with this? Where are they basing their sources on? Um, If they are um, mentioning certain that's a research that they are referring to. Maybe have a quick scan of it to see if it actually matches up with what they're actually just suggesting. Maybe talk to some experts in that field to see what the consensus seems to be within that field. And that will hopefully get you closer to the truth. Um, I think someone that claims to have all the answers is another red flag for me. I think when you look at where most of the true experts in a lot of these fields are at is they will tell you the things that we seem to be pretty confident of based on current literature, but also be aware of the many things we don't know or that there's still room to find more about. And certainly uh, they don't claim to know everything. So they, they will tell you about their expertise in a very narrow area. And usually the more of an expert someone is on a certain topic, the narrower that area is just because of the time they had to devote to that. So someone that seems to have the answers to every type of question and claims to be the expert or authority, that's probably another red flag. Um, also just questioning what could explain someone's potential motives for saying this? So are they speaking in very emotional terms as opposed to rational terms? Do they have a past experience that is very personal and emotional to them that might cloud their judgment and objectivity? Are they basing what they're saying on um, objective data or are they basing it purely on anecdotal reports? These are all things that we can slowly piece together. Um, but it's certainly a process to get good at that and to get more skilled at seeing when someone is being um, honest and objective in what they're saying or not. And it's very difficult a lot of the time. So um, I think it, 
all of us are going to struggle to immediately be able to detect this and it just takes a bit of, uh, of time so uh, there there's some things that come to mind just to be aware of that was absolutely brilliant R- really fantastic uh, uh, a summary of of how to think of these things and one thing that i want to highlight there that you said is to uh, find out what the consensus among experts is in in any given topic so just because one person says something or one study found something that doesn't mean that it's the absolute truth we have conflicting results all the time so we need to basically figure out what what the consensus is and if there is a consensus or if we just need more information and that's uh, i guess part of the reason that i i have you on because you have uh, read all this research and you have talked to all these people so you're a perfect person to to talk about what the consensus is on on the different fields yeah and i think that's what most of my kind of learning and message is based around it's not that i'm a, an expert on any one particular topic it's that i just have a keen interest in trying to learn about these different things and have it doing that through conversations with people and it's and that's essentially how i hope that people that listen to my show learn is not through me telling them things that they should then believe it's listening to a conversation and for them deciding what parts of that seem relevant to them and and them learning through their own listening as opposed to being told what to believe um and so yeah hopefully that 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 comes through yeah absolutely so let's move into the rapid fire questions and uh, these are very quick 15 seconds or less and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to nutrition um, so I was I was thinking about this, and I think for your audience particularly, and those with an interest in uh, endurance sport, triathlon, and sports nutrition principles for those particularly, I'd probably recommend uh, Asker Yukendrup's book, Sport Nutrition. Um, I think last year there was a new updated version of it. I think it's the third edition of that textbook. So um, it's quite detailed and might be a bit dry for people because again it is a, a textbook for university uh, students um but it would be the most comprehensive uh you could get to all the principles of sport nutrition it learning through that and reading through that book you would be able to see and be able to vet information that's come to you you'd be able to understand why i've said for example today things like a low carbohydrate diet is not an optimal strategy for a um for an endurance athlete rather than having to take my word from it that reading through that book you'll be able to see here's the science here's the physiology of how the human body works how we fuel it and you can base it on that so i would say probably sport nutrition um by asker you can droop and i think michael gleason is the co-author on that and what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, I'll probably say uh, humility. And um, it's, again, it, it sounds weird to kind of say that as a an answer to something where I'm claiming I've achieved any degree of success because I often feel like I, I don't. But I think uh, the one thing I try and remind myself of a lot is uh that i how little i know about anything in life just in general and how it's all just a continuing learning process for us and i think that mindset helps no matter what you're trying to do in life of just remaining uh being confident in who you are but also having some degree of humility 
And I'm going to change the last question because I noticed on your website that you are a lifelong Arsenal football football club fan, which uh, I am too. Mm. And uh, so, oh, after another game of uh, clutching defeat from the from the jaws of victory, so to say, <laughs> who do you think should be the next Arsenal football club manager? Oh, this is a tough one. I mean. I, I would be really interested, and obviously, it, it, it probably isn't likely because he's only in a new job now. And a lot of people might have thought this was weird because of how he left Liverpool. But I think Brendan Rodgers would be a really good fit for Arsenal. I, I love his uh, philosophy of how his he sets his teams up to play. It's very much in the mold of um, the way Arsene Wenger used to set them up when we were actually good, and the ball retention, but with a actual means to an end. So I think the problem with Emery's team right now is he tries to focus on controlling the ball, but it's so ineffective. It's controlling the ball with the team at the back, making passes into midfield. There's no real cutting edge or creativity. There's no intent with what they're doing. And I I just think with the players that Arsenal have right now, especially going forward, like there's just an incredible amount of talent there. Um, I've just got, I, I just, I would just like to see Brendan Rogers style of play, uh, uh, in that. And I think the reason why I also pick him is that he is someone who we could go and get, right? Obviously if I could pick anyone, I'd probably go Pep Guardiola, but that's just not realistic. But I think, um, come the end of the season, I think, uh, someone like a Brendan Rogers would, would be an interesting choice for me. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree that that would be a, an excellent choice. So finally, tell, tell the listeners where they can find you, your podcast and, and your business and uh, any website, social media you want to mention. Sure. So probably the best place to check out everything I've got going on is sigmanutrition.com. And if people want to check out the podcast, then they just look for Sigma Nutrition Radio on any podcast app. And then I'm pretty easy to find on social media if they just either type in my name or uh, particularly on Instagram, just go to Danny Lennon underscore Sigma and they'll be able to find me there. Um, but I'm also on Twitter, Facebook and all that type of stuff. So any of those places, I'm happy to take any uh, questions or comments or, or anything else that people are interested in. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Danny. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I wish you all the best for your uh, continued uh, podcasting journey as well. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed talking with Danny. Uh, Some key takeaways for me really is that uh, there are lots of interesting trends out there for sure. And we should keep our eyes and ears open and keep following this space. And the best place to do that is Sigma Nutrition Radio, in my opinion. That's where I get most of my up-to-date nutrition information from. But we should be aware and uh, that there's... Nothing really that warrants sensationalism and uh, uh, hyperbole that sometimes surrounds nutrition trends. Uh, So you need to learn to just find the right quality sources, the right people to listen to and figure out what the big consensus in the field is, not what the strong opinion of one self-proclaimed guru is. So I think that uh, Danny gave some great advice of how to think about these things. So definitely go and listen to that part of the interview again if you're still not quite sure how to figure out what information is good and what information is not so good. 
You can, as usual, find the show notes for the episode on thattriathlonshow.com and I'll link to all related episodes as well, including the one I did with John Hawley, which is related to some of the topics that we discussed here, as well as uh, the page where I have collected all nutrition-related episodes. You can also find it directly on the website scientifictriathlon.com by going to the menu bar and choosing more popular topics, nutrition. In the next episode, next Monday, I interview Andrew Simmons about altitude, including altitude training camps, as well as going to race at altitude. And of course, on Thursday, we have a Q&A coming up as usual. So stay subscribed to the podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Also, if you are a long-time listener and you find the podcast useful, a rating and review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use that allows rating and reviews really, really does help. So please take a couple of minutes to do that if you haven't and if you find that the podcast has been helping you. Big thanks, finally, to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test and get a free hydration plan. And try a first box or tube of electrolyte product for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Do your Christmas shopping, whether it's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and save 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.